When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a major escalation in the January 6th investigation. For the first time, the Department of Justice has filed seditious conspiracy charges related to the insurrection, charging 11 people, including the leader of the far-right militia, the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes. Now, seditious conspiracy is defined as if two or more persons conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property. Now, in plain English, this is the first time our government has called some of the events that happened on January 6th a conspiracy to use force to prevent the presidential transition. It's important to understand who we're dealing with here. Now, unlike the randomly thuggish Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers are an organization largely of current and former military, law enforcement, and first responders. They're armed, and they're trained by our own tax dollars to know how to use those weapons. In their statement announcing the indictment, the DOJ alleges that Rhodes and his co-defendants conspired by organizing into teams that were prepared and willing to use force and to transport firearms and ammunition into Washington, D.C., recruiting members, organizing trainings to teach and learn paramilitary combat tactics and bringing and contributing paramilitary gear. They're also accused of breaching and attempting to take control of the Capitol grounds and building using force against law enforcement officers and plotting to, and continuing to plot after January 6th to oppose by force the lawful transfer of power. The indictment also provides a timeline of the encrypted group chat messages that Rhodes sent encouraging his co-conspirators. Two days after the election, November 5th, Rhodes urged his followers to refuse to accept the election result and states, quote, we aren't getting through this without a civil war, unquote. On November 7th, he said, we must now do what the people of Serbia did when Milosevic stole the election, refused to accept it, and march en masse on the nation's capital. And by November 9th, he held a call outlining a plan to stop the lawful transfer of power. The organizing and the paramilitary training continued over the next few months, with Rhodes advocating for the use of force on the Oath Keepers website. On Christmas Day, six days after Trump's Be in D.C. It Will Be Wild tweet, Rhodes wrote, I think Congress will screw President Trump over. The only chance we have is if we scare the S out of them and convince them it will be torches and pitchforks time if they don't do the right thing. But I don't think they will listen. The planning continued, and by January 5th, they were in the D.C. area, stocked with weapons. On the morning of January 6th, they split into two so-called stacks, one on each side of the Capitol. At around 2.12 p.m., Rhodes entered the restricted Capitol grounds. At 2.25, he instructed his co-conspirators, come to south side of the Capitol. And as the DOJ notes, at approximately 2.30 p.m., Oath Keepers and affiliates, many wearing paramilitary clothing and patches with the Oath Keepers name logo and insignia, marched in a stack formation up the east steps of the Capitol, joined a mob and made their way into the Capitol. 
And we all know what happened next. An insurrection ensued. Rhodes was arrested today and is currently an inmate in Collin County, Texas. The Oath Keepers are one of two major violent groups accused of orchestrating the insurrection, along with the Proud Boys, you know, the group that Trump told to stand back and stand by during the presidential debates. The January 6th Select Committee is investigating both of these groups, but Rhodes hasn't decided yet whether he will testify. This comes as the committee is continuing to investigate the online rhetoric that led to the insurrection. Today, they subpoenaed four major social media companies, Alphabet, a.k.a. Google, Meta, a.k.a. Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter. Committee Chair Benny Thompson said in a press release, two key questions for the select committee are how the spread of misinformation and violent extremism contributed to the violent attack on our democracy, and what steps, if any, social media companies took to prevent their platforms from being breeding grounds for radicalizing people to violence. Joining me now, Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst Malcolm Nance, whose new book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Militias, Terrorists, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency, is due out in July. Joyce, I'm going to start with you. Here is the indictment. Uh, I've been reading through it with great interest. It reads sort of like a you know Tom Clancy novel. I mean, the, these people took you know real detailed planning to try to overturn an election that they said could not be accepted. Um, please explain what is the significance of the Department of Justice going with a seditious conspiracy charge. So selecting this charge is really DOJ framing the issues around January 6th. And Joy, as you noted, this indictment is careful to set forth that they're looking not just at that day itself, but at what preceded it and what followed it. So they're looking at a conspiracy and ongoing course of conduct. And unlike prior indictments, this is not an indictment that alleges obstruction of Congress. This is not an indictment that talks about being uh, on the Capitol grounds without permission. This sets forth a seditious conspiracy, an effort to interfere with the transfer of power. And it brings new gravitas to the way that DOJ is viewing these events, confirming that they're going after the heart of a conspiracy to take down democracy. Yeah, I mean, it's a relief to see the DOJ acting, and they're acting in a pretty big way. Um, you know, Malcolm Nance, what, what stood out to me in, in reading through this indictment was the, the, the way that uh, the leader of the Proud Boys was referencing Milosevic, uh, were referencing what the, what Serbian, what Serbians did to try to overthrow that, you know, him taking power, him, them saying, stealing the elections. And also, if you look at what they had, I mean, these are just some of the weaponry and, tac- and tactics that were discussed uh, on these group chats. They brought shotguns and scopes, magazines, sights, optics, AR platforms, rifles, firearms, night vision devices, a boat that could handle a Potomac crossing. They said we could have our team with the heavy weapons standing by, quickly load them and ferry them across the river. This was not a casual conspiracy. This was, it sounds like an active military plan. It was an active military plan. And and believe me, I've been monitoring the internal communications of these groups since this time last year, uh, well before the insurrection. And, you know, when I wrote my last book on this, one of the things that I found very, very early on, what it wasn't just the Oath Keepers that were planning to be seditious. You're going to find out further in in, in subsequent indictments, I'm certain. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and the 3% militias had multiple meetings about this. 
Uh, they started and really started getting people ready in late October, early November, sending them to training schools, having them, you know, have 1,500, you know, 150 uh, rounds of combat load ammunition on their weapons, getting their body armor together. What you saw on January 6th was the command cell of the Oath Keepers. There were many, many, many hundreds more Oath Keepers there. It's a big organization. It's just that this was Stuart Rhodes' teams that he was bringing into the building. And if you recall that very night, we were on this very program, I said it's quite possible that these people may have had capture and kill teams that were organized to go in there, murder cells is another way that we put them, and that they would be very well organized. This entire sedition uh, was, you know, the insurrection in itself was well organized because not only did they plan it, they also sent orders out to everyone and thousands of people came dressed like them. You know, and the million dollar question, of course, is what the sitting president at the time knew and understood about it. You know, but, but just to, to, for, to just give our audience a little context, the last time that we had a, sedition, a, a federal sedition prosecution was 26 years ago when Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh, and nine others were convicted mm. of plotting to blow up the United Nations, the FBI building, bridges and tunnels between New Jersey and New York. Before that, more than a dozen Puerto Rican nationalists were convicted in the early 1980s of sedition in their role in the Armed Forces of National Liberation, the FOUND, a group that claimed credit for bombings across the United States. So p- people need to really understand this is a very, very serious charge. And Joyce, uh, the question then becomes what Trump knew. Now, we know that, you know, Trump is trying to say that he cannot be held responsible for anything that happened that day. But Judge Mehta, um, who is see- hearing that case in court, said the following, whether Trump should be immune from civil civil lawsuits, not talking about criminal right now, but said, what do I do about the fact that the president didn't denounce the conduct immediately? Isn't that from a plausibility standpoint um, that the president probably agreed with the conduct of the people inside the Capitol that day? You have an almost two hour window where the president does not say, stop, get out of the Capitol. That's not what I want you to do. But beyond that, you also have tweet after tweet after tweet from Donald Trump going back to December saying, be at the Capitol. It will be wild. You have his associates hiring members of the Oath Keepers as security, hiring Proud Boys as security, associating themselves with him. Is it possible, from your point of view, Joyce, for the DOJ to look at this conspiracy without looking at Donald Trump? Well, this is exactly the sort of inquiry that prosecutors will have to engage in, Joy. I think you're right at the decision point that they'll ultimately have to look at. To prove that someone participated in a conspiracy, you have to prove that they entered into an agreement with people to achieve an illegal goal. Here, that goal is to interfere with the transfer of power. So it's not enough to watch approvingly from the sidelines. You actually have to have engaged with them in this enterprise. And that's the question that's always swirled around January 6th. That's whether or not there was involvement by Trump or by anyone around him. That's still the unanswered question here. We just don't know enough to answer it. We do know that many of these Proud Boys previously were involved in guarding Roger Stone. So that raises this obvious question of whether there's a link up. I'm afraid we're going to have to wait a little longer to find out the answer to whether prosecutors have the evidence to go that far. Right. And you think about, I mean, the fact that we still don't know who planted pipe bombs, 
you know, at the DNC and the RNC, the DNC, when the, the, the current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, was inside during one of those uh, plant bomb pipes. I mean, there is so much that we need to know. We know, um, mm-hmm. Malcolm, that Donald Trump tweeted at least these three things. January 6th, be there, it will be wild. That was December 19th. We know January 6th, you in D.C., December 3rd. He knew something was, I mean, at least he knew there was going to be a rally there. You could just say he just knew that. But why would he say it was going to be wild? Why is Bannon saying all hell was going to break loose? And then there's this January 5th tweet where he starts teeing up the idea that Antifa is violent randomly. That was the last tweet of the day where he's talking about a group that has nothing to do with anything, but teeing it up later on, his followers all say, oh, they did it. If, if you were looking at this from, let's put it in the Al Qaeda perspective. If you have mm-hmm. someone like Osama bin Laden, also a, uh, a sort of itinerant real, real estate guy, right? Who's out there saying we're at war with the United States. But he himself doesn't get on one of those planes. But all of the people who listen to him and who he's egging on get on those planes and they commit the terrorist acts on 9-11. Is it possible to look at just the people who were in the planes flying them and doing the terrorism without looking at bin Laden? No. And, and the people who are actually down there smashing the windows, breaking their way in, these are the level zero heroes as they like to portray themselves. But let me put it in this perspective so that you understand it from a counterterrorism world and why this sedition charge was so significant. You have tier four people, right? That's the average schmo who came to that thing. 40,000 people, 10,000 engaged the building, 2,000 penetrated the building. The next level up is this tier three, which is the Stuart Rhodes command and control people on the grounds of the Capitol who help organize the military aspects of it and may have been actually doing command and control. Then there is the level that Stuart Rhodes will lead up to and the Proud Boys will lead up to. And that's what I call treason command, which was operating out of the Willard Hotel, which was the people who were the political leaders, uh, you know, the Steve Bannons, everyone in there who seemed to know what the plan was and had established a command organization in that hotel that was directly linked to the White House. And then you have the tier one, uh, you know, conspirators. You know, they have the Mark Meadows. I mean, all you have to do is watch Rachel Maddow and you can start seeing these people were organizing entire bodies of states, the House of Representatives and others to layer down all of the effects that were happening that day to consider themselves an entire coup d'etat. And that's what it has. You have four tiers that all this is way beyond sedition. I mean, this is literally a plan to overthrow the government. And the final question to you then, Joyce, if Donald Trump sought to benefit from an attempt to overthrow the government, an attempt to intimidate Congress into not uh, into not certifying the election and then false slates of electors being served up on a silver platter that Mike Pence was supposed to then take. He is seeking to benefit from a violent overthrow of the government with a plan to substitute other electors. I find it very hard to believe that he could be completely ignorant of that and still be enthusiastically sitting in the White House watching it happen and not stop it. You know, judges love to tell juries when they go back to deliberate after all the evidence is in at trial, 
You don't have to check your common sense at the door. You can use your common right. sense in evaluating the evidence. And that's true here. We all know what we saw. We draw logical conclusions. Now it's up to prosecutors to do the heavy lifting of making sure that they have sufficient admissible evidence so that they can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt before they bring any charges. That's why we see this painstakingly slow and frustrating methodical effort to put together the evidence. Sometimes as a prosecutor, you're able to go all the way to the top. You have enough admissible evidence to bring charges and other times you don't. And one possibility here, Joy, is the possibility that it's not one linear conspiracy that starts with the foot soldiers on mm. the ground and goes all the way up into the Oval Office. It's possible that there are different groups, each trying in their own way to interfere with the transfer of power. We'll have to wait and see what the Justice Department decides its evidence will prove. I've been very frustrated myself with Merrick Garland, but on this one, I have to say kudos to the Department of Justice. This is an important case. Joyce Vance, Malcolm Nance. And yes, y'all, you better be watching Rachel Maddow because you don't want to miss it. Literally, you're going to get so much information. Uh, this is a big, 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 big story. Up next on a very, very busy night. President Biden goes to Capitol Hill to fight for voting rights. But Kirsten Cinema sabotaged the effort before he even had a chance to arrive. Also, after more than 800,000 COVID deaths in this country. The right-wing Supreme Court ruled today in favor of the virus. Plus, tonight's absolute war spent thousands of dollars on a TV ad targeting an audience of one. And she's not the only one sucking up to the biggest loser. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. The debate over the Senate's 60-vote threshold shines a light on our broader challenges. There's no need for me to restate my long-standing support for the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation. That was the conservative freshman Democratic senator from Arizona, Pry talking an hour before the president of the United States came to rally Senate Democrats to pass voting rights legislation and basically telling him he's wasting his time. Senator Sinema paid lip service to two voting rights bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John R. Lewis Act. Just as she's paid lip service to the late civil rights leader on Twitter and bragged about co-sponsoring the bill named in his honor. But with her dead set opposition to changing the filibuster, she's ensuring that the bills are going nowhere. Apparently, for Senator Sinema, protecting the rights of the minority party in the Senate is more important than protecting the rights of minority voters. 
Over the past 24 hours, the House and the Senate worked out a complex maneuver to pass the two bills in one package, the combined Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. The House passed it in a party-line vote with a goal of passing it in the Senate by Monday, MLK Day. So much for that. Despite being intentionally undercut by a senator from his own party, after meeting with Senate Democrats, President Biden acknowledged the challenges ahead, but said that he would continue to fight election subversion. I hope we can get this done. The honest-to-God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. But I know one thing. As long as I have a breath in me, as long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting to change the way these legislatures have moved. After President Biden spoke, not to be outdone by his colleague, West Virginia conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said that he, too, would not vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster. With me now, Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Voto Latino, and Ari Berman, senior reporter for Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari, you've been, you've been on a tear about this all day. Uh, I, I note the disrespect of Senator Sinema standing there, like acting all emotional, as she says, I'm killing this bill, before the president even got a chance to come down and talk to the caucus. The disrespect of that to the president, I think, was I mark that. But also, apparently, when the president did meet with the caucus, she didn't even listen as John Ossoff gave a standing ovation inducing speech, passionately defending voting rights. She was looking at her phone, per uh, NBC News reporting, looked at her phone the whole time and didn't look up until her name was mentioned like Donald Trump would. Um, this seems to be someone who has essentially declared that voting rights don't matter. All that matters is what Republicans want and what they and what they desire and what they will vote for. So you, as somebody who has, has made it your, your mission, your life's work to try to achieve, you know, access to the ballot. Where are we now? Well, Kirsten Sinema didn't just disrespect Joe Biden. She disrespected American democracy. And it's incredibly ironic that she called John Lewis her hero but she's going to allow hmm. Republicans to filibuster the John Lewis Voting Rights Act on Martin Luther King Day. And really, she is allowing Republicans, her and Joe Manchin, are allowing Republicans to set the terms of the entire fight. Because what's happening is Republicans in the states are passing all of these voter suppression laws on simple majority party line votes. But Cinema is saying we can't protect voting rights in the U.S. Senate on a party line, simple majority vote. And so what she's essentially saying is it's too partisan and divisive to stop laws whose entire purpose are to be partisan and divisive. So basically, Republicans are plotting the next coup. They're doing everything they can to take over election operations in every key swing state. And Cinema and Manchin are basically saying, we're not going to do anything to stop it. Imagine yeah. the message that it sends to the Republican Party and the message that it sends to voters all across the country who need badly federal protection for voting rights right now. You know, and, and I, you know, I hate to say it. I don't want to read into I don't know this woman, um, Maria Teresa Kumar, but, you know, she probably feels she'll be fine. Right. If there's an autocratic takeover of the United States. Right. She's got all these rich donor friends. You know, she's an, you know, well-paid white lady with like lots of friends and in high places. She probably feels it'll hurt her. But her state, it might hurt quite significantly. Um, the state of uh, Arizona is 31.7 percent Latino. It's 
5.2% African-American. It's 4% Asian Pacific Islander. Um, the, the indigenous population makes up 5.3% of the state. It's going to hurt somebody, but it's not going to hurt her. So she clearly doesn't give a damn. Um, but let me not even argue with her. Let me let her argue with her. This is Kirsten Cinema <laughs> back in 2010 on the false pressure for 60 votes. Here she is. The Democrats um, can stop uh, kowtowing to Joe Lieberman and instead seek other avenues to move forward with health reform. And so it's likely that the Senate will move forward with a process called reconciliation, which takes only 51 votes. The Republicans controlled the Senate for quite some time, in fact, since around 1994. They never had 60 votes, and they managed to do a lot of really bad things during that time. So the reconciliation process is still quite available, and we will use it for good rather than for evil. Your thoughts, uh, MTK, as somebody who's made it your life's work and your passion to ensure that the rising majority in this country, you know, that Latino voters have access to the ballot. Well, Kristen Sinema seems to be very much of the political stripes that she'll change to whoever is calling her name the most. In this case, it seems to be being courted by the rich and the wealthy of the Republican Party. The challenge, though, is that she does not represent the interests of the of the state at all. You mentioned the rising uh, electorate there. The young people that you talked about, African-Americans and Latinos, are disproportionately young Arizonans. They are aging into the population. They are trying to define their future for this country. And it's by no coincidence that the modern day Jim Crow laws, Joy, coin are coincide with the rise of young, diverse America. For the second time in a row, for the second decade in a row, Latinos were responsible for 50% of our population growth, American-born children who happen to be Latino. And when you look at states like Georgia, when you look at states like Arizona, when you look at states like Texas, together with the African-American community and the Latino community, it's an incredible force. And instead of having the Republicans compete for us on policy issues, they want to control and and control and centralize power. And cinema wants to be part of that apartheid autocratic government. And that's the question we should ask. We should also ask, where are the patriots on the Republican side? Where is the McRomney's? Where is he? Why isn't he standing up? Because I can tell you that from what I understand from his father's legacy, which is what he claims is why he's here, his father would be completely I believe I'm really upset and angry at what the Republicans are doing because they are not talking about party politics at this case. What they are trying to do is that they are trying to erode little d democracy. As the president said the other day, de- voting, the access to voting booth, that is the threshold to a functioning democracy. What Kamala Harris said the other day at Atlanta, which she said that these voting rights are going to affect every single American, she is not wrong. Because what happens in autocratic governments is that it has it gets to a point where it's no longer about the color of your skin, it's the amount in your bank account. Because you centralize yeah. power on your cronies and your friends. And that is not only the antithesis of America, but it actually goes against our promise. And so what we need, and people say, well, what do we do now? Right. We need every single American right now calling the members of Congress, calling their senators and saying that it's not okay. And we need to look for new leadership in Arizona, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, people who love democracy need a long-term plan to replace every single one of these 
people who think that an autocracy in which they think they'll be the us and we'll all be the them, they think that's better mm -hmm. than a democracy. They need to all go. Uh, start thinking about those long-term voting plans. Maria Teresa Kumar, Ari Berman, thank you both very much. We still have a lot to get to tonight. Up next, the conservative majority Supreme Court deals a major blow to the Biden administration's efforts to get this ongoing, never-ending pandemic under control. We're back after this. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Wise is Happening, author Ari Berman on his new book, Minority Rule, the right-wing attack on the will of the people and the fight to resist it. If we're going to be at a moment in time when so many people are saying we have to understand the Constitution as it was intended, then we have to understand that it was intended to check democracy, not to expand it. And we can have such a view of the Constitution that says that all of these institutions are so amazing when it's so obvious that they made a lot of mistakes and that a lot of it needs to be corrected. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. We have a lot of breaking news on the COVID front, including the U.S. Supreme Court siding with the virus today by blocking the Biden administration's rule requiring vaccine mandates for companies employing more than 100 people. But the court said a separate mandate requiring vaccinations for an estimated 20 million healthcare workers can be enforced. This comes the day President Biden stepped up his response to the Omicron surge, for the Omicron surge, pledging to provide Americans with free tests and masks. He's also sending 120 military medical personnel to six states where hospitals have been overrun by cases. Let's bring in Congressman and physician Raul Ruiz of California, who's joining us from the Palm Springs Convention Center, where he's helping the Find Food Bank distribute COVID-19 antigen tests. Also with us is former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neil Katyal. And thank you both for being here. And Congressman Ruiz, I want to start with you. Uh, and thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I, I love that you are helping to actually get tests because that's what people so desperately need. But just as a, as a physician, as somebody who is out there trying to represent the people and help them, what do you make of the Supreme Court doing away with this mandate? You know, it doesn't make sense. And in a public health perspective, it only hurts us. Uh, it is only good for our public health and for the large corporations, businesses to keep their employees safe. And they can do so by either ensuring that they get vaccinated or that they get tested and if they're positive, to stay away from other individuals that can also spread the virus and cause uh, more sick days and loss of productivity for that company. So it is a bad day for our public health efforts, but we still have some good news. The Biden administration has purchased over 500 million tests. Uh, they're on their way to providing 300 million a month. Uh, we also have these pilot programs with the Health and Human Services and USDA that we see here where they're taking the test to the people into the communities that are vulnerable. If you're food insecure, then your, your immune system is probably weaker and therefore you'll get more severely sick. You also more likely live in resource poor settings where you have lack of access, lack of space in your household to, to prevent from getting infected and quarantining 
uh, being able to quarantine away from other family members. And therefore, this is a very high risk, vulnerable population. And I think it's very smart. And the pilot program is working. This organization, Fight Food Bank, under the leadership of Deb Espinosa, has already distributed 50,000 tests. Today, they're going to distribute over 800 tests, uh, testing kits to, to households right here in Palm Springs and the Coachella Valley. I, and God bless that, that and everyone involved in doing that. And, you know, credit where credit is due. That is actually a wonderful program. And the Biden administration really deserves credit for it. You know, I mean, we're, we're trying to save lives here. That is the end goal. You know, and Neil, I, I have to say, I, I, I don't have faith in the Supreme Court. I think they are ideologues. I think they are right wing ideologues. I think they are sort of doing sort of a Christian nationalist version of, you know, whatever it is the Supreme Court used to do. But, you know, I, I just look at the numbers. You know, Biden talked today about United Airlines, where he said, well, let me just list, let, listen to what he said. This is uh, President Biden today talking about one company that benefited from these mandates. United Airlines uh, uh, was uh, was averaging one employee dying a week from COVID-19. After implementing this requirement, it's led to 99 percent of its employees being vaccinated. United had 3,600 employees test positive, but zero hospitalizations, zero deaths in over eight weeks. I mean, the, the administration had made an estimate that it would that the mandate would result in 22 million people getting vaccinated and prevent 250,000 hospitalizations. The usual six that voted the way we would expect them to vote, the, the, three, the, the six right wingers. At this point, Neil, have they not just simply stated by their actions that they are more in favor of right wing politics, the kind of DeSantis style right wing politics than they are in favor of saving lives? They don't really care well, if, if this causes lots of people to die, clearly. Well, well, Joy, I do think that this is a really dark day for the court and for the country. And, you know, today's Supreme Court opinion is kind of like the Kristen cinema of Supreme Court opinions. And I don't say yeah. that lightly in attacking the court. I rarely do attack the court. Indeed, you know, I lost another case today at the Supreme Court about veterans benefits. But you're, I'm going to stay silent on that. But today's decision on vaccines, it's such a grave threat to public safety. And the idea that the Supreme Court is responsible for it, it's really hard to imagine. I mean, the justices are now living in their own bubble. You know, I, I just argued there recently, and I can't tell you all the COVID restrictions they had. I had to go get a negative test. They barred all the visitors and the public from being there. They moved the podium back 15 feet uh, so that I was farther away. They did all sorts of things to control their work environment. And what President Biden did and what OSHA did is say, look, you know, if you're an ordinary employee, we know you can't control your envi work environment the way that Supreme Court justices can. So we're going to do it for you and impose these restrictions. And the court had a legal fiction to get around it. What they said today is, well, it's not a, quote, occupational hazard because you could get COVID at work or you could get it at, at a baseball game. You could get it at school or a baseball game. Well, by that logic, then OSHA, this agency, shouldn't regulate fire prevention plans because right. you could forget to turn off the oven or your kids could be playing with matches. I mean, it is ludicrous. And, um, you know, I just think this is such a bad thing for the court and a bad thing for public health. And I'm so grateful to people like the congressman for doing what they can to patch the gaps when our justices aren't uh, protecting us. I have to ask you very quickly, what did they do to veterans benefits? Because uh, just very quickly. Uh, the, the, the Social Security benefits, they cut them back for a certain category of, of veterans today. 
Of course. At this point, Neil, it is hard to think of them as anything other than right-wing ideologues. They should all just have right-wing talk radio shows. They are not justices in the great tradition of Supreme Court justices. They're just politicians. They're just added to, as far as I'm concerned, I see nothing about what they're doing that that, that I can possibly respect. It's it's sad what's happening to this country. But I thank you uh, for being here, Neil Cattell, as always. Congressman Farrell Ruiz, thank you for what you're doing. You are doing God's work out there. We really appreciate you. Stay tuned uh, for a little bit more because we still got tonight's absolute worst. How the twice impeached, disgraced former president's toadies are dripping all over each other, trying to win a front row seat in his craven cult of personality. We'll be right back. There are at least eight Republican candidates in Nevada vying to challenge incumbent Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak in November. Among them, Las Vegas Council member Michelle Fiore. She believes that all COVID mandates need to be banned, that teaching factual history in schools is a threat against our children, and that activists who oppose police brutality are domestic terrorists. You know, normal stuff for the Republican Party these days. Even more interesting was her first ad announcing her candidacy. Take a look. I'm Michelle Fiore, and I'm running for governor. I spent my whole life fighting the establishment. I was the first female majority leader in the Nevada Assembly and one of the first electeds to endorse Donald J. Trump. And you better believe I was attacked for it. Again, not too surprising to see a candidate tying herself to Trump. And of course, no Republican ad would be complete without the candidate brandishing a firearm. But it's where the ad was played that I find so compelling. Let's show it on the screen. Now, as you can see, her campaign purchased ads in the Nevada media market, which makes sense. But if you look all the way to the lower right there on the map, you can see another ad buy that, correct me if I have my geography confused, is nowhere near Nevada. In fact, it's more than 2,100 miles away in Florida. In fact, the Fury campaign purchased 62 television spots on Fox News in West Palm Beach, hoping it catches the eye of her dear leader. It's just another example of the cult of personality continuing to play out over the twice-impeached retired golfer in Florida. Case in point, last night you had Senator and part-time Trump caddy Lindsey Graham, who miraculously manages to sit up without a spine, demanding that the Senate Minority Leader join him in kneeling to Trump. He's the most consequential Republican since Ronald Reagan. It's his nomination if he wants it, and I think he'll get reelected in 2024. But here's the question. Can Senator McConnell effectively work with the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump? I'm not going to vote for anybody that can't have a working relationship with President Trump, because if you can't do that, you will fail. Hard to believe that a year ago, Lindsey went onto the Senate floor after January 6th and said enough was enough and to count him out when it came to Trump. And then we come to the man vying to be the next Speaker of the House, at least in name only, Kevin McCarthy, who is previewing his future subservient role, telling the January 6th committee he will not cooperate in their investigation. There is nothing that I can provide the January 6th committee for legislation of their moving forward. There is nothing in that realm. It is pure politics of what they're playing. Of course, there is plenty that he could provide the committee, but that would involve having a shred of integrity. The vice chair of the committee, Republican Liz Cheney, said last night, I wish that he were a brave and honorable man. He's clearly trying to cover up what happened. Unfortunately, brave and honorable are not words that have been used to describe this Republican Party. And there are real consequences to them being, you know, the absolute worst. And we'll get to that with former RNC chair Michael Steele next. 
How problematic is it if all the House Republicans refuse to talk to you guys? Well, it's unfortunate if people who take the same oath that I took to uphold and defend the Constitution uh, don't want to talk about efforts uh, to, to thwart that Constitution um, and to prevent a free and fair election, to prevent a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, those are things that are deeply problematic, and that's what we're seeing on the other side. The refusal of, so far of Republican members of Congress to cooperate with the January 6th committee begs the question, what are they so afraid of? Is it the orange man down in Florida or the truth of their own culpability? Joining me now, former RNC chairman Michael Steele. And Michael, it must be head spinning for you uh, to watch the party that used to call itself the party of law and order uh, and that you used to be the chairman of sort of en masse decide that they don't have to respond to subpoenas. Let me put up a list of some of the people who are saying they don't have to cooperate with this committee or respond to subpoenas. They just don't have to cooperate at all. It's Scott Perry who called the committee illegitimate. It's Jim Jordan, who is a committee chairman right now, called it unprecedented, inappropriate demand. And Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be Speaker of the House. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I think a lot of that was set in a motion probably, oh my gosh, what? When when Trump started out and everybody was coming after him and the reality was, I, I don't have to do anything. There was no accountability in, embedded in the system. So when the Republican leadership uh, saw how much Trump could get away with, that inspired, it incentivized, uh, it, it offered protection. Um, and, and so what is really interesting to see play out is how the January 6th committee now tackles that and is actually pushing into and up against that idea. It'll be interesting to see whether or not they they make uh, McCarthy and others hold and honor that subpoena in some form. Um, yeah. Never been tested, never been tried. But the expectation on the Republican side is, well, they don't have the you know what to do it anyway. They don't have the kahunas right. to go there. So we're good. And we'll just go into front of a bank of microphones despite that I said, oh, yeah, I would show up and say, no, 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 this is all politics. Well, this is not all politics. January 6th is not about the politics. January 6th is about the the attempted overthrow of our government. And as elected officials who served within that government and who were threatened by those outside the walls and doors knocking to come in, you would think that they would care enough to want to participate to get to the bottom of it. But there's no incentive there for them to do it. You know, what's, what's, what's sort of fascinating, I mean, we, we talk a lot about norms, you know, and, and I think that that word might just need to be thrown out. I mean, Donald Trump sort of reset the, the right. sort of uh, parameters for what you can get away with as a political figure. I mean, these people literally had their lives threatened by the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and this mob. But they're more afraid of some retired loser in Florida who can't even tweet. He can't even get on Twitter. What what do you why are they so terrified of him? Is it because he has so primed the base into a cult and yeah. they fear for their lives if they well, stand against him? The, yeah, that's the key thing, Joy. He's primed the base and he continues to prime the base. Look at the arc on Lindsey Graham from January yeah. 7th to today. Right. Where, you know, last night he's out there talking about, well, if nobody, if you don't stand with Trump and support Trump, I'm not voting for you. Well, OK, until you do, well, it, it, you know, because if it, it starts to go south with Trump like it did on January 6th. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm done. Well, guess what? We're at a point now as, as citizens, we should be tired of this crap. We've seen this movie. We've heard the dialogue over and over and over. We can say the moment they open their mouths, 
that is that is words leading to nothing. It means nothing. When they speak, they literally mean nothing. So yeah. it's incumbent on the rest of us to work past that. I, I I just I cannot I cannot stress enough how profoundly important it is to understand what this November's election means. Yeah. In many respects, yeah. it's more important than last year's. Yeah, I mean, the I 2020 election. And just for you, I mean, because, you know, when, when, when you and I used to spar on, uh, on, yeah. uh, on MSNBC, we used to be on, day, you know, on panels together. And, you know, we had like real sort of political disagreements that were like legitimate and political. You were even at the time when you were RNC chair were saying, no, I want us to expand this party. I don't want it to be a 90 percent white party. I, I want us to like be, you know, talking to hip hop artists. I want us to be talking to black folks. I want us to be talking to yeah. like you actually actively. At what, what do you think made Republicans say we we absolutely don't want that. What we would rather do is simply lock people of color out of the ballot box and just outright flip elections that we don't like. The re- How did they get to the point? Because Trump cannot have personally been responsible for making the party what it is now. It can't have been him by himself. He's not that smart. No, no, it, it certainly wasn't. This goes back. This goes back all the way back, probably to Goldwater in the 60 campaign. It goes back to the uh, to the John Birch Society, um, the, the response of the party leadership at that time. It goes back to, to McCarthy and McCarthyism. Um, so this has been a long train. There's a reason why in 2009, I believe it was in 2009, I gave a speech at the National Press Club declaring that the the Southern strategy, the Nixonian Southern strategy was over, that the party could no longer exist in a compromised position with voters, that you either have to stand with them or you're going to be against them. And in, when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to all the things that are important to white folks, they're also important to black folks. And our party should be able to go forth and make that articulation. So what happened, you look at the numbers. And you see the demographic shifts and some white folks got scared and they got more and more scared. And the political calculation very much that was made in the 1960s was made again, that that's the salvation. That's the salvation. There will always be white people. And they'll always vote Republican. And that's and that mindset is what has kept it kept the party, I think, landlocked. You don't believe me. Just look at what they did with the autopsy. Yeah. I mean, you you spend a million dollars to tell America we want the Hispanic vote. <laughs> and then you <laughs> let you let this 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 guy come down a staircase and tell you, well, all Mexicans are rapists and murderers. And the chairman yeah. of the party sits there and goes to New York and starts the groveling process to keep and appease a guy who was sitting at about three percent approval in Republican <laughs> primary polls. Yeah. yeah. So it played yeah. to a negative narrative inside the party because it, it brought yeah. money. And power. Yep. And you know what? It, it, the only way that somebody with with Trump's level of intellect can take over a party is that it's just a beta male party. They're, these are the beta as males I've ever seen in my life. There is no sort of manliness about it. There's no they, they just literally wilt in front of him and, and grovel on the floor and beg for his love. And he can't even hurt them anymore. But he still gets to be the autocrat. Autocrat. It's amazing. Uh, Michael Steele, I appreciate you, my brother. Thank you very much. You got appreciate it. you. And that is you, cheers. Joe. That's a nice readout.
here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.